say last week we explored the third noble truth, the truth that dukkha can cease. In other words, freedom can be known. And in the context of our exploration of fear and fearlessness, I focused on the wisdom wing of the practice last week. The understanding, the insight into the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta. The understanding that all experience is impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. And then for the sake of balance, in the homework I invited you to turn to the other wing, the compassion wing, remembering that in the context of this course, compassion here includes all four of the Brahma-Vihara practices. So we, I gave you quite a few resources for exploring equanimity, which is the fourth of the four Brahma-Viharas. And it's a very powerful resource for helping us to navigate the challenging phases of the path. Because as we briefly touched into last week, there is the paradox that we can experience fear of fearlessness. In other words, fear of freedom. So today I wanted to focus specifically on how this fear of freedom shows up in relation to our Dharma practice. So right back in week one, we saw how various forms of fear, anxiety, resistance are common responses to the truth of dukkha, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. But just to acknowledge that all of you here have developed some capacity to overcome this resistance, or you wouldn't be here, you wouldn't even be interested in this course And still, at different stages of the development of this Dharma path, as the practice deepens, there are times when we find ourselves in new and unfamiliar terrain, as Marisha and some of you were pointing to. So the American monk Tanisaro Bhikkhu, some of you know, he's written an interesting essay on the need to bring determination or resolve to our practice. Because, as he says... Otherwise, you just sit and meditate for a while, and then when the going gets tough, well, that's enough for today. You don't push your limits. As a result, you don't get a taste of what lies outside the limits of your expectations. As the Buddha said, the purpose of the practice is to see what you've never seen before, to realize what you've never realized before, And many of these things that you've never seen or realized lie outside the limits of your imagination. In order to see them, you have to learn how to push yourself more than you might imagine. So the point of our mindfulness practice is to bring insights, to see what we've never seen before, to realize what we've never realized before. And yet, there's something in all of us that is resistant to change. So it's completely natural to experience fear of the unknown or fear of freedom, precisely because for most of us it is an unusual experience. So a few years ago, I saw a cartoon that expresses this kind of fear very well. It was a drawing of a small bird in a little wire cage, And there was a thought bubble above the bird's head that contained an image of a very large, fancy wire cage with porticos and columns and that kind of thing. 
And the bird was saying to itself, when I get out of here, I'm going to build the best cage ever. (laughs) And I think we can all relate to that um, sense. That image stuck with me because it just shows how much we get entangled, bound, caught up, consumed by afflictive states to such an extent that when these states start to release, we can lose our nerve. Instinct takes over And metaphorically, we want to get back in the cage. And in terms of life and practice, there are two big unknowns in particular that tend to bring up fear. One is death, and the other is nibbana. And as the practice deepens, these two start to overlap more and more. They come together, for me at least, in one of the epithets for nibbana, which is, quote, the deathless. And I think I mentioned back at the start of this course how when I was on retreat with Bhikkhu Analio last year, he explained the term deathless as referring to someone who has transcended their fear of death. And it was really that explanation that sparked my interest last year and led to the development of this course. So we're kind of coming full circle now. And as promised last week, I do want to spend a little bit of time exploring Nibbana. Partly because even though it is the ultimate goal of this practice, of insight practice, there are a lot of misunderstandings about what the term Nibbana is referring to. And because of those misunderstandings, there's often some resistance even to the idea of Nibbana. So Nibbana also referred to as enlightenment, awakening, liberation, freedom. So often people will say things like, well, I'm not interested in Nibbana. No, enlightenment isn't relevant for my practice. No, I don't believe in awakening. Liberation, no, that's just not for me. But when you ask them, well, what do you mean by Nibbana, by enlightenment, by awakening, by liberation? Usually they can't answer. It's just some fuzzy, vague concept. And to be fair, many of the words that are used to describe Nibbana in the suttas do make it sound pretty abstract, remote, esoteric, even unappealing. So to give just one example from the Samyutta Nikaya, Nibbana is referred to as, quote, the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the truth the other shore, the subtle, the very hard to see, the everlasting, peace, the deathless, the supreme goal, the blessed, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, non-distress, non-affliction, Purity, freedom, the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond. Got it? So you might have noticed different responses to some of those phrases, some of those words. 
But even with all of those different synonyms, the meaning of nibbana can be hard to grasp still, which is perhaps appropriate because it's about the experience of non-grasping. So almost by definition, any attempts to define the undefined are going to fail. So on the one hand, the non-graspability of nibbana can make it seem mysterious, esoteric, unreachable. But there's another way of understanding nibbana in terms of the mind that's completely free from greed, from hatred, from delusion. In other words, free from those three core afflictive energies that we explored back in week one. And hopefully this definition makes it seem more more approachable and more relevant. So this is how it's spoken of in the Anguttara Nikaya. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and they experience mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both. And they experience no mental pain and grief. Thus is Nibbana visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So in other words, Nibbana is what we experience when the mind is free from greed, hatred, and delusion. And with this definition, we can have a foretaste of Nibbana whenever the mind is at least temporarily free from afflictive states, even if that's only for a nanosecond or two. So that's one reason why last week I invited you to bring to mind a time when you felt at ease, strong, confident, kind, courageous, and so on. Because the more we can let those moments in, the more we can acknowledge, recognize, even abide in them, the more our hearts and minds naturally start to orient towards those. And in those moments of skillfulness, instead of being experienced as moments of grace, sort of random, they start to become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. So there's a kind of a figure ground shift that happens where what was once experienced in the foreground as normal and natural, i.e. the afflictive states, they start to fade into the background. And conversely, the times of ease, calm, contentment, freedom, they start to become the norm instead. And a side effect of this figure ground shift is that when we are in phases of ease and peace, whatever is afflictive stands out much more starkly, we see it much more clearly, we experience the pain of it more vividly. I don't know if you've had that experience. You know, if you can think back to 10 years ago, there's probably things that were in your consciousness that back then you just thought, oh, you barely even registered, didn't seem like a big deal. But if you put those things in your consciousness now, they're like, whoa, that's not helpful, that's not skillful, that's something I really need to take care of. Does that ring true for people that there's a sense of the balance of afflictive and skillful states is shifting and the more we're in the skillful states 
the more subtle, unskillful ones tend to stand out more. So depending, though, on where you're at in the development of the practice, some of you might still be wondering, well, how is nibbana ever going to, quote, become visible in this life when the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion feel to be so predominant? So last week when we were talking about the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta, we talked about impermanence, anicca, and often this is one we might think of impermanence as being as a cause of suffering. But impermanence is also the means by which that suffering can be released. Because the more we attune to that, when the mind is sufficiently stable, we start to notice the gaps in our afflictive thought patterns. So one teacher, uh, may have quoted this earlier, said at the end of a meditation, as you finish the meditation now, just notice the gaps between your problems. And that just reveals how much we orient to the challenges, the difficulties, the pain, and miss the gaps. And in those gaps between the afflictive states, that's where we want to orient because that's where we have ease, spaciousness, equanimity, clarity. And again, they might be momentary, but these tiny pauses in the stream of clinging, craving, resisting, these are what some teachers refer to as temporary nirvana, temporary nibbana. So some of you know of Ajahn Buddhadasa. He was a very highly revered Thai meditation master of the last century who wrote quite a bit about temporary nirvana. He talks about our practice as a process of continually orienting to these moments of temporary nirvana until eventually they convert to complete nirvana. He says, Temporary nirvana nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements were with us day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Living things would either die or become insane first and then die. One survives because there are periods when the fires of defilements do not burn. Periodical or temporary nirvana keeps all of us alive and well, and it's a nourishing condition, normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana? Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements and strong desires are absent. Our instincts inherently have such a quality. That is to say, we instinctively go in search of spans of time when the mind is free from defilement or desire. Whenever this happens, a little nirvana always comes in. And the phenomena will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. So with this understanding, nibbana or awakening is not something lofty or remote to be experienced in some far-off distant future. It's available in moments whenever we remember to let go of clinging, craving, resisting. Then we can experience nibbana as the reality of non-grasping, which is how Ajahn Chah, another Thai meditation master, describes it, Nibbana as non-clinging. 
So just circling back to the Anguttara Nikaya, sorry, the Anguttara Nikaya quote, the definition of Nibbana, one aspect of that quote that I really appreciate is that it points to the benefit of this practice being not just for ourselves, but for others too. Because as it says in the sutta, when the mind is free from greed, hatred, and delusion, we protect ourselves and others from ruin. So there's an ethical and altruistic dimension to nibbana, one that might not always be so clear when we hear it referred to as terms like emptiness or non-grasping. Because in fact, nibbana has wider implications that go way beyond our own freedom. As the saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. And healed people, heal people. And over the course of these six classes, we've been noticing, I think, how anxiety can be contagious. But so is the opposite. So last week, for example, many of you had the experience sitting with your partner hearing them describe times of courage and confidence, how that resonated and catalyzed your own courage and confidence. And this is just one small example of how when we're more oriented to our true nature, the less harm we do to ourselves and to others, and the more benefit we can be. And the Buddha acknowledged the ethical benefits of freedom when he talked about keeping the training precepts, the ethical trainings, as being a great gift. He spoke about this orientation towards ethical conduct as being offering to others and ourselves the gift of fearlessness. So this is yet another aspect of fearlessness that I would have liked to have more time to explore We could have easily spent a whole class on it, but here we are at week six. So just to touch into it for now, this gift of fearlessness operates in many ways. And on the most basic level, it's about keeping the five training precepts. Anybody not familiar with the five ethical precepts? Yeah. So just briefly, not killing living beings, not taking what hasn't been freely offered, not using our sexual energy in ways that cause harm, not lying or speaking harshly, not taking intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. And because each of these precepts is rooted in the principle of non-harming, others have nothing to fear from us. They sense, they can trust that we're not going to hurt them or betray them or harm them in any way. So they experience freedom from fear when they're around us. We ourselves experience, as the Buddha says, a share in this same gift of fearlessness because we don't have to worry about our wrongdoing being discovered. We don't live in fear of being blamed and shamed and punished. Instead, we can experience what the Buddha referred to as the bliss of blamelessness. That's not something we often think of, but even right now, might not be upon bliss But can there be just a sense of appreciation that for the most part I'm living in my life in ways that are skillful and minimizing harm to myself, minimizing harm to others. So I wanted to talk about this fearlessness as a gift to oneself and others because 
People sometimes uh, misunderstand the pursuit of enlightenment as being something selfish. So you hear people talk about navel-gazing and people self-absorbed and so on. But this is a serious misunderstanding because the more we can free ourselves from afflictive states, the more beneficial we can live our lives. And that process of releasing, clinging, craving, resisting on deeper and deeper levels is really, to me, the greatest gift that you can offer yourself and others. But strangely, as we were pointing to last week, as the practice deepens, one form of clinging that often gets revealed is our attachment to dukkha itself, which on first hearing might sound crazy, but if we really pay attention, we sometimes notice how we're almost addicted to that clinging, craving, and resisting on gross and subtle levels because it gives us a sense of something to do in terms of the template of gratification, danger, and escape. It gratifies a sense of me, my problems, I have to resolve them, I have to get over them, I have to improve myself, and so on. So this addiction to wrestling with the so-called defilements, I had an example of this A few years ago, early on in my practice, when I was in a relationship with someone, and you know, like I think most relationships, it had its challenges. And one time it was in a not so good phase from my perspective, and I was lying in bed and I was fixating about everything that was wrong with it. So my mom was like, oh, our relationship should be more like this, and it shouldn't be like that, and he should be more like this, and he shouldn't be like that, and I should be more like this, and this shouldn't be happening, and if only it was more like X, and then I'd be happy, and if only he'd stop doing Y, then I'd be happy, and there's just this kind of burble, 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 and it felt, you know, now I can recognize all of those thoughts as a classic symptoms of the second noble truth of craving, clinging, resistment, resisting, identification, and so on. But at that stage, I didn't see how I was actually feeding the whole process. And metaphorically, it felt like I was blowing up this big balloon, shiny red balloon. Like, and he should this. And, and why isn't he? And this balloon was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, at some point, it just popped. And the whole thing collapsed. And I realized it's just unsatisfactoriness unsatisfactoriness is like this and there was a moment of really strong release a feeling of relief and then there was this powerful moment of nostalgia where's my balloon i want that struggle back there was this nostalgia for the dukkha because the state of being free from it was so new and unfamiliar that it was disorienting as marisha was saying earlier So we have, often we need to see how sometimes the cessation of suffering, this third noble truth, when we touch into it, can it bring unanticipated reactions and it can illuminate some quite deep conditioning. For example, the assumption that a practice is supposed to be hard, painful, difficult, challenging. And if it's not, if it's pleasant or even enjoyable, then I'm obviously doing something wrong. I'm not practicing hard enough. I'm not going deep enough. I'm not seeing clearly enough and so on. 
So this process of releasing clinging and attachment on deeper and deeper levels can be quite uncomfortable at times and even bring up fear. So I thought just to offer a few suggestions for navigating these times in the practice when there might be some sense of groundlessness or insecurity or fear. The first is, as I'm trying to do now, just to normalize that these are expected, common, necessary aspects of the path. They're not wrong and a problem. The more we understand that they are transition phases, that they're necessary for our growth, the easier it is to tolerate them. So perhaps more poetically, we might think of them as a phase of metamorphosis, similar to the the caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. When the butterfly first emerges from the cocoon, it needs to rest and allow the soft structure of its wings to harden before it can fly. So likewise, the best thing we can do when we're experiencing some phase of anxiety or insecurity is to try to meet it, to rest with it, and to meet it with patience, with kindness, with self-compassion, trusting that this too is a part of the natural unfolding. So a few years ago, I read that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's used to refer to meditation literally means getting used to it. That's great because everything we're doing in meditation is getting used to it. And we can interpret this in many different ways. But I found it very helpful in relation to those challenging phases of the practice where there is a sense of being in new territory of some kind, that our meditation is a way of getting used to it. So a second strategy that's been helpful in my own practice is to consciously reconnect with my deeper aspiration for being on this path. Because, of course, when we are feeling shaky, it's very easy to lose sight of why we're putting ourselves through these challenges. But if we can remember to keep reorienting to our underlying deeper motivation, sometimes that can give us the confidence to keep going. And the more altruistic that motivation is, usually the more successful it is at keeping us on track. Because if it's just me and my small goal, that cannot not feel strong enough. But when we have a felt sense of that we're doing this not just for our own benefit, It brings us into a more expansive relationship, one that can inspire us to continue. So a few years ago when I was going through a challenging phase, I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge for a couple of months and difficult stuff was coming up and there were times when I had a flicker of wanting to just stop. But I was doing some volunteer work in a prison nearby and I thought about all of the men in the group who would have loved to be on retreat at the Forest Refuge but the circumstances weren't there for them. And so instead of just having a cup of tea and going to bed early and calling it quits, I think, no, let me do one more session on behalf of those men. And there was a voice in my mind that said, whatever discomfort you're experiencing right now, is completely trivial compared to the benefit that will come through going through this. Don't give up. 
So when we orient to our deeper aspirations, sometimes it can catalyze a more intuitive wisdom that doesn't come from the intellect, but can give us strength to continue. Sometimes, though, we do get caught in doubt about our own capacity. And at those times, I found it helpful to sort of borrow faith from other people, particularly people that I know who I sense have some deeper Dharma understanding. And I am, I, I'm pretty fortunate to know quite a few people like that, meditation teachers, mentors, Dharma friends, a range of people who I feel pretty sure have progressed some way along this path and are likely have to, to have walked this same difficult terrain that I might currently be in, that I might currently be struggling with. And I can have a sense of confidence that those people have gone through that terrain and come out the other side in pretty good shape. So in a way, they're living role models that remind me of what is possible. And even if you perhaps don't know anyone personally that brings up that kind of confidence or faith, you might think of teachers whose talks you've listened to. Maybe you've never met them, but you have a sense from hearing their talks that they have some depth of practice. Or you might bring to mind more public figures, perhaps His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh or Pema Chodron. Perhaps for some of you, the Buddha himself is a source of inspiration. In my own practice, when I was experiencing times of doubt and fear, I would occasionally imagine some of my teachers walking alongside me during the walking meditation. So there was a team of us. At other times, I would imagine sitting in a circle surrounded by those same people and feeling their sort of moral support. And I had the sense that just as they had gone through difficulty, so too could I. Depending on your orientation, some people find it beneficial to ask for support from unseen beings. This is particularly common in the Tibetan tradition, for example, where people sometimes recite phrases such as, may all the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, the noble ones of the three times, past, present, future, please help this being to awaken for the benefit of all. So again, that's just a way of aligning in a way to a bigger perspective, to a bigger picture that for some people can be offer a sense of um, strength, confidence. Other people might make a kind of a resolve to help shore up their courage. May I move through this phase of fear and reconnect with courage so that my practice might be a contribution to the welfare, the happiness and the freedom of all beings. So if you choose to make these kind of inner statements, that find your own language. You know, It's the intention, the motivation behind them that's important. It's The purpose is to take us out of our small self-view, which is where the fear and anxiety usually reside, and connect with a bigger picture, connect with possibilities beyond my own perhaps limited imagination in that moment. And we can think of these as what are called skillful means. There's no set formula for setting these intentions. So whatever words or images or symbols or practices work to help us release the fear and move forward with some degree of confidence. 
So along those lines, I'd like to finish with a quote from the Buddha. It's one of those passages that sounds quite modern to me, almost as if he was speaking directly to us, which in a way he is. So as you hear this, see if you can listen as if the Buddha was talking directly to you. He says, Abandon what is unskillful, practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I wouldn't say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. Develop what is skillful, practitioners. It is possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible to develop what is skillful, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because it is possible to develop what is skillful, I say to you, develop what is skillful. If this development of what is skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. So may we all develop what is skillful more and more fully so we can experience benefit and pleasure for ourselves and offer the same to others. So thank you for your attention. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.